this morning to have Noah uh, lead us in worship. We are firm believers that the words that we sing are to direct our hearts and our minds to Christ. And by God's grace, uh, that happened this morning. And we are thankful for the ability for God to prepare our hearts for the preaching of His Word through song. And so I pray that your hearts were encouraged and that we meant the lyrics that we sang. For salvation really does belong to the Lord. A theme that, that Jonah touches on here in this book as well. Now, today's sermon title is Jonah's Self-Righteousness and the Sovereign Mercy of God. And I wanted to just teach Jonah chapter 2 this morning. As if you've been with us, I started a sermon series in Jonah back in October. And I preached two weeks in a row through Jonah chapter 1. Then I had some medical problems, missed a week, came back, preached the third and final sermon in Jonah chapter 1. Then I was in Costa Rica for a few months, and now I'm back, and Pastor Mark is, is gone, and he's handed things over for me these next couple of weeks to continue preaching, and I wanted to continue just in chapter 2, perhaps just do a sermon in chapter 3, perhaps a sermon in chapter 4. But as I wrestled with this text over and over again, I realized that I could not teach Jonah 2 without heavily relying upon the rest of the book to give context and explain the truths that I'm about to point out here from Jonah's prayer. And so I am going to attempt to preach the rest of the book this morning. Now before we get started, let me pray. God, you are so good. Lord, you are so worthy of our worship. Lord, simply because of who you are. God, you didn't have to save us, regenerate our hearts, and put your spirit within us, Lord, so that we could live rightly before you. Yet, Lord, you did, and we give thanks for that. God, you didn't have to save the Ninevites. You didn't have to save the sailors. Yet, Lord, you did in your grace and in your mercy. And we are also beneficiaries of that same grace and mercy. And Lord, we rejoice for that. God, you are good despite circumstances in our lives that seem not good. Lord, as Brian tearful, tearfully said this morning, the news of Brett, Lord, even in this trial, you are good. And we can trust in you and we can lean on you. Lord, speak through me this morning. Lord, may I be a signpost pointing to Christ, a mere channel of your grace. Exalt yourself, make much of yourself. Increase our heart's desire for you. Let us love you more, desire you more. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now before I begin, I want to make clear that this prayer of Jonah is heavily debated amongst scholars, pastors, and other students of the Word. I will be teaching this morning what I believe is true, but perhaps you will disagree. However, as always, do not rely upon my words, but rely upon the Word, the Word that I hope to heavily rest on and accurately teach from this morning. With that said, here is my premise. 
God's desire is to change and transform the hearts of those whom he wishes so that he will be glorified in their salvation as salvation belongs to God and God alone. Men like Jonah, like us, are naturally self-righteous and painfully unaware at times of our rebellion against God and his word. Yet in God's mercy and in his grace, he disciplines those whom he loves to rip out the evil from our hearts, both unto salvation and continuing in our sanctification. Therefore, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, we see, Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, But before we dive into what this prayer is of Jonah's, let's quickly review how Jonah got into the stomach of this fish. If you remember from Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, God called Jonah the prophet to rise up and go to Nineveh to cry against them for Nineveh's evil, their wickedness, has come up before God. However, rather than obeying God, Jonah flees the presence of God and desires to go to Tarshish, what is believed to be the furthest city away in the known world. Hopefully there is a map up on the screen that demonstrates this reality. Jonah is told by God, go to Nineveh, and instead he flees in the opposite direction, hoping to get to Tarshish. And he initially achieves this goal by getting on a boat with a bunch of pagan sailors who are headed in that very direction. God doesn't take Jonah's disobedience lightly, though, and therefore, prior to Jonah's arrival to his newfound land, God hurls a great wind on the sea, causing such a panic amongst the sailors that they know that this is no ordinary storm. Thus, the sailors plead with their gods, quote-unquote, and they wake up Jonah from his sinful slumber so that he, too, would call upon his, quote-unquote, God. But as we never see Jonah cry unto God during this, the sailors cast lots to see who is at fault. And we know, according to Proverbs 16.33, that as the lot is cast, the decision belongs to the Lord. And the lot providentially falls upon Jonah. This leads the sailors to confront Jonah in chapter 1, verse 8. They said to him, tell us now. On whose account has this calamitous evil struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? To which Jonah responds, giving the first of three confessions about God that he says in this entire book. The confession in verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah's confession, I serve God, the God who created the sea and the dry land. The second confession comes in chapter 2, verse 9, the prayer that we're going to look at this morning, where he simply says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the third confession that we will also get to this morning comes in chapter 4, verse 2, where Jonah says, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents 
concerning evil. These are three confessional statements that Jonah says during this book to show us what Jonah believes about God. And we will explain each of those when we get to them, but it is, it is extremely helpful for us to know this right now, that this is what Jonah believes about God. Yet as we will see, these truths seem to have little to no impact on his life. Because you see, church, it doesn't matter how doctrinally sound you are. If head knowledge is simply just head knowledge, it's useless. The head knowledge must trickle down to our hearts so that we would live these truths out. Jonah says, he confesses these great truths about God. And he fails to live them out. In Romans chapter 12, we're told that the... the transforming of our hearts comes through the renewing of our mind. Doctrine is important. And at this church, we strive to preach good and sound doctrine. But we don't just want the doctrine to be left up here. We want it to be found in here. Continuing on in the story, the pagan sailors seem to have more godly fear than Jonah. And desiring to, de to escape death, they plead with Jonah to do something. Well, despite Jonah's knowledge, according to, one, according to chapter 1, verse 9, that God is the creator of the dry land and the sea. They're in this storm because God sovereignly brought it. God brought the wind in. God can take the wind away. Despite Jonah's knowledge of that, he does nothing. Despite Jonah's knowledge of the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord, he doesn't repent and cry out to God and, and, and ask for salvation for both him and the sailors. On the boat, and despite his knowledge in chapter 4, four verse 2, that, he, that God is gracious and compassionate, full of loving kindness, and relents from his anger, Jonah doesn't cry out to God, pleading with God to demonstrate these very characteristics of himself. Instead of repenting and crying out, Jonah's solution is suicide. And in verse 12, Jonah says, Lift me up and hurl me into the sea. The sea will become quiet for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Yet despite this plea from Jonah to just cast him into the sea, the pagans and their newfound fear for God refuse, at first, to answer Jonah's plea. Instead, they diligently try and row to shore until they can no longer row there because the sea is getting too great. And finally, the sailors cry out to God using God's covenant name that he gave to the Israelites, Yahweh. And in verse 14, they call on the Lord and say, Ah, oh Yahweh, we earnestly pray. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, oh Yahweh, as you have pleased, you have done. It seems that these pagan sailors have a greater fear for God than Jonah, the prophet of God. And these pagan sailors throw Jonah in the sea, and as they do so, the sea stops raging. And the sailors respond in a way that we can only hope we would respond if given the same situation. In verse 16, it says, Then the men greatly feared Yahweh. 
And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. These pagans who started out crying out to their little G gods, now serving the one true God, Yahweh. And through the sovereign mercy of God in the rebellion of Jonah, they come to saving faith in the true God as shown in their reverent fear, their sacrifices, and their vows that they make to Him. And then also in God's sovereignty, He appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And this brings us back to chapter 2, verse 1. So now Jonah is in the stomach of the fish. We just saw how he got there. Now what does he pray? Before I read, I want to point out that this prayer is actually stylistically the same as a psalm of thanksgiving. And so if you think, wow, this sounds a lot like a psalm, you're right. And so follow along in your Bibles as I read this through the first time. I called out of my distress to Yahweh, and he answered me. I cried for help from the belly of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current surrounded me. All your breakers and waves passed over me. So I said, I have been driven away from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to my very soul. The great deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the base of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit. O Yahweh, my God. While my soul was fainting within me, I remembered Yahweh. And my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their loving kindness. But as for me... I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. So given that this is a psalm of thanksgiving, what is Jonah thankful for? His physical salvation. Jonah is thanking God in this prayer for the fact that he physically was delivered from his trials. Ironic as this is, as it was he who wished to die. He is the one that told the sailors, throw me into the sea. Because Jonah would rather die than face the Lord. Yet now we have this psalm where he's thanking God for the new life that he has. Now many will tell you that this is Jonah's prayer of repentance. Yet if we take a closer look at this psalm, what seems to be missing? Any. And literally, I mean any form of repentance. He doesn't confess his sin, let alone acknowledge his sin. In fact, this prayer, once we dig in, seems to be a lot about Jonah and how great Jonah is and all the good things Jonah does. And when he does mention God, he seems to almost blame God for the predicament that he is in. Now let's go back and read it again. I called out of my distress to Yahweh and he answered me. Keep in mind, I called out of my distress. He answered me. Typically when we see this kind of language in the Psalms, which we do often, it's because the people who are in the distress are in the distress genuinely because of their enemies. David prays Psalms like this continually because he has people wanting to kill him. 
The only person wanting to kill Jonah in this story is himself, and it's his sin that got him there. He's not righteously in distress like David is. He put himself in this mess. I cried for help from the belly of Sheol, and you, Lord, heard my voice. Oh, good job, Jonah. Way to go, you valiant man. For you had cast me into the deep. Now Jonah's right in, in regards to the, it was the sovereign hand of God that threw Jonah into the, into the deep. But again, if we just went back to chapter 1 as we just did, we would see that it was Jonah's idea to go. Because he didn't want to face God. You, Lord, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current surrounded me. Your breakers and your waves pressed over me. You see who Jonah's enemy is right here? It seems to be that Jonah believes his enemy here is God. This isn't a heart that seems to get it. But Jonah, the valiant man that he is, verse 4 says, So I said, I have been driven away from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to my very soul. The great deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the base of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh my God. While my soul was fainting within me, I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Now look at this in verse 8. Those who regard worthless idols forsake the loving kindness. Who is he talking about? The pagan sailors who just gave their lives to the Lord, who prior to doing so were crying out to their worthless idols? Keep in mind here that as Jonah is in the ocean, he's not crying out for the salvation of the sailors. Jonah has no idea what's happening in the hearts and the minds of the sailors. But as we see, as we read, as we understand, Jonah seems to have a very pharisaical attitude here, much like the Pharisees in Luke chapter 18, where they cry out to the Lord. And it says in Luke 18, 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Jonah, in the belly of the whale, as he's facing death, cries out and says, those who regard worthless idols... <laughs> I'm glad I'm not like them. God, I will offer unto you this thanksgiving, this offering of sacrifice, because I trust in you. I pray to you. I'm coming to you. I'm not like those pagans on the boat who cry out to their little g-gods. But the irony is that God worked in those pagan sailors' hearts so that they would no longer worship the little g-gods, and now they are worshiping the big g-god, the true God, while Jonah is in the belly of the whale Making, him, making his self-righteousness known to God and known to us. Thank God that I'm not like them, essentially he says. And in this prayer, offering no confession of sin, he fails to live out the very heart of the tax collector that the Pharisees talk about, who when they pray to the Lord, they beat their chest, unwilling to lift their eyes up to heaven, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The pagan sailors recognize this. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Assyrians are about 
to recognize this. God, be merciful to us sinners. Yet Jonah doesn't seem to get it. And in verse 9, as we continue, salvation belongs to the Lord. Oh, the irony. As Jonah clearly didn't care about the spiritual salvation of the sailors because his refusal to repent revealed that. Yet God saves them in spite of Jonah. And as you will see, he despises the salvation of the Assyrians, yet God saves them. Jonah testifies salvation belongs to the Lord. Yet Jonah does not want the pagan sailors to receive salvation, nor does he want the Assyrians to. Now, even if you disagree with me on my take on this prayer, you cannot deny two things. Number one, God is merciful in hearing and answering Jonah's prayer. And number two, what follows in Jonah's life is miserable, pathetic, and should not be emulated. So again, thank God that he is merciful. Then in verse 10 of chapter 2, Yahweh speaks to the fish and it vomits Jonah up onto the dry land. Now, Jonah's given a second chance. So what happens this time around is Jonah is given a second chance. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out to it this very call which I am going to speak to you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go into the city one day's walk, and then he called out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This time around, Jonah obeys, at least on the surface. In fact, due to Jonah's self-righteousness in his inability to see or recognize his sin, as well as the fact that God showed his mercy on him, giving him another chance, Jonah probably has a newfound confidence to go and preach judgment upon these people. In fact, Jonah likely even feels death-proof at this point. What are the Assyrians going to do? Kill him? God wouldn't let him drown in the ocean when there was no hope of salvation. Do you think that God is going to let the Assyrians attack and kill him? So now Jonah has all the confidence in the world and he cannot wait to see his enemies be destroyed. However, God throws a wrench into Jonah's seething plan to watch the destruction of Nineveh. And in verses 5 through 9, we see a miracle take place. Nineveh repents. Follow along with me in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. All Jonah did was say 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. He didn't even give them the good news that they, if they repent, they could, they could be saved from this wrath to come. Because Jonah doesn't care. He doesn't want to see that. Jonah just says, 40 days and you will be destroyed. And I, Jonah, can't wait to see it. Yet this word coming to the Ninevites is powerful enough because the word of God, when preached, will never return void. Never. It will always accomplish what God desires it to accomplish. And here, the word going out accomplishes belief in the Ninevites. And that word believed is the same Hebrew word in Genesis 15, 6, 
where it says that Abraham believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Which is literally the verse Paul uses in Romans chapter 3 and 4 to teach that we are saved through faith alone apart from works of the law. So yeah, for anyone who questions, is the belief of the Ninevites genuine? I would say it definitely is. And it is proven in what they continue to do. Even Jesus attests to this faith that they have in Luke chapter 11, verse 32. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. You see, this is familiar with the story of the prodigal son. We love to use the prodigal son as a story that demonstrates you in your own life maybe being that prodigal son or you as parents having a prodigal son. And although that is applicationally true, that's not what the prodigal son is teaching. The prodigal son is teaching that the, that the son that stays is the Jewish camp. And the son that leaves is the Gentile camp. And when the Gentile camp comes back, the prodigal son comes back, the father, God, runs to him with open arms and invites him into this fellowship. And who's upset about it? The son that stayed. The Jews. The Jews want nothing less than to see the Gentiles be invited into the salvation that they have. The relationship with God that they have. This is the same reason why the Pharisees' prayer in Luke chapter 18 is that way. Thank God that I'm not like them. That's what Jonah says and believes and lives out here. But God's heart is for all men everywhere. Wishing for none to perish. But in verse 6, look at what the king does. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, laid aside his mantle from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. The king of Assyria rises up to get off his throne just so that he can repent. You see, the word comes to him. What word? The word that judgment is coming. The word of God comes to the king of Assyria. Just like the word of God came to Jonah in chapter 1, yet instead of rising up like Jonah does to flee, the pagan enemy king rises up to get off his throne and humble himself. The same Hebrew wording is used in both passages. Jonah rises up to flee. The pagan enemy king rises up to get on his knees. Church, do not miss this point. In order for us to come to Christ, we have to get off the throne of our lives and let the actual king sit in his place. Jesus is king. And if we profess to be Christians, that means that Jesus sits on the throne of our hearts. And if he sits on the throne of our hearts, then that means that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him. The one who, while we were enemies of him, like this pagan enemy Assyrian king, reconciled us to him. You see, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And now God is for us as we are for him. 
This repentance from Assyria spares them from the imminent judgment, just like our repentance in Christ, because of Christ, saves us from the wrath of God that we deserve. And not only are we spared from wrath, but even more so, we are given life in Christ. Just as the Assyrians here are given life. Then the repentance and the belief that these Assyrians have continues to have its effect. And in verses 7 through 9, we see even more humility. And he cried out and said, In Nineveh, this is the king, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, animal, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat and do not let them drink water. But both man and animal must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God with their strength that each man may turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Fasting, earnest prayer, and turning from their evil ways because who knows, God may turn and relent. Well, who does know? Apparently Jonah, as we're about to see, Jonah knows that God might turn and relent. But despite the knowledge of God's being able and desiring to turn and repent, Jonah doesn't want the Assyrians to do so. Who doesn't know that God will turn and relent? The Assyrians. And so in humility, they don't come and demand their rights before the Lord and say, we're going to fast, we're going to pray so that we can get relief. They recognize now that God is worthy of worship despite Him delivering them. You see, God is worthy of our worship because of who He is. Not because of what He's done or what he continues to do or even what he will do those are all important but God is worthy of our worship simply because of who he is if God didn't save a single soul God is still worthy of your worship Ready? let me take this a step further if God somehow told every single person in this room you're going to hell at the end of your life God is still worthy of your worship now, thank God that that's not our reality. That He has spared us from the wrath of God while we were enemies and reconciled us to Him. But God is not worthy of your worship because He saved you. God is worthy of your worship because of who He is. And if we miss that, then we miss the point of what Scripture is teaching. The Assyrians understand that point, And because they now see that God is holy, that God is sovereign, that God is just, they turn their hearts and their minds to Him. They respond in prayer. They respond in fasting. And they hope that God will relent. But they know that God doesn't have to. And their knowledge of the fact that God doesn't have to does not prevent them from worshiping God as God because it's not dependent upon that. Amen. Church, we worship God because of who He is and we give thanks to God for what He's done, what He's doing, and what He will continue to do. Thank God for sparing us from the wrath and inviting us in to fellowship with Him. Amen. Church, we do not deserve mercy. We are like the Assyrians who deserve death. Let us then know this truth, cling to this truth, and run to God pleading for mercy as we know from 1 John 1.9. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God promises to forgive those who come to him in all sincerity. Let us be those people that come to him. Then for the repentant and hopeful Assyrians, what happens? Verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. So God relented concerning the evil which he had spoken he would bring upon them, and he did not bring it upon them. God relents. Church, praise God that he relents. Jonah must be rejoicing that the enemies of God have now been made sons of God, as not even Jeremiah or Isaiah or Elijah or Ezekiel or Elisha had this kind of success in their prophetic utterances from God. So then how then does Jonah respond? Chapter 4, verse 1. But this was a great evil to Jonah, and he became angry. You read and heard that right. This word evil is the same Hebrew word ra that means evil or wickedness that is used to describe Nineveh's deeds in chapter 1 verse 2 where God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it for their evil has come upon me. Nineveh's evil has reached God and he says, Go, pronounce judgment upon them because they're evil. Jonah turns that around After Nineveh repents of their evil, Jonah turns that around and accuses God of doing evil for relenting. And it says that he became angry, and this word angry actually means burning. Jonah was red hot mad. Jonah wasn't red hot mad at the evil that Nineveh was doing. Indifferent about that. Jonah's red hot mad that God forgave Assyria. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on to pray in verse 2. And he prayed to Yahweh and said, Ah! Oh Yahweh! Was not this my word to myself while I was still in my own land? Therefore I went ahead to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning evil. Now Jonah reveals his motive for fleeing. Jonah didn't flee Nineveh because he was afraid of death. Jonah fleed Nineveh because he knew that God would forgive them. And Jonah wanted nothing less than for God to forgive them. He didn't want God to forgive them. He just simply did not want his enemies to be saved. And so he flees. Now church, what is our heart towards unbelievers? Because if our heart is not rooted in a strong desire to see them saved, then maybe we have the heart of Jonah. One that wishes for the destruction of our enemies rather than for them to see or rather for them to come to the same saving faith that we have come to, because God has shown us mercy through His sovereignty. No one deserves mercy. That's the point. Yet for whatever reason, Jonah seems to think that he does deserve it, and that these people don't. And he continues in verse 3, So now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Just earlier in his prayer, in chapter 2, he was so thankful that he received life when he should have died. And yet here he is again, 
like in chapter 1, wishing for death because his disgust for these unbelievers runs so deep that he would rather die than see God be merciful to them. Now, what are we doing in our lives to live this out? What is our priority? There are unreached people in the world, lost people in our neighborhoods, and often deceived and or rebellious people in our churches. Do we love them enough to tell them? Or instead, do we live for ourselves, however we want to, pursuing our own desires and dreams as if doing those things is more important than their salvation? In the book of Philemon, you have this character named Onesimus who's a runaway slave of Philemon. And as through the providence of God, Onesimus runs and encounters Paul and and Onesimus gives his life to the Lord, Paul then is sending Onesimus back to Philemon to give them this letter. And in his letter, Paul says, Onesimus was once useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to I. Why was he useless to Philemon? Because he wasn't saved. Unbelievers are useless. They're going to hell. They have no worth because our worth is found in Christ alone. Do we care? Onesimus is now useful. Onesimus now has worth. The Assyrians were useless. They were going to face judgment. But now they've repented. They have use. They have worth. Do we care? Think about it. It's convicting for me. Church, what is our life about? You see, in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. This rich man was a professing believer in Yahweh. Yet if you're familiar with the story, that rich man ends up in hell. Why? He was joyously living in splendor every day. And in his joyous pursuit of splendor, he walked by every single day, Lazarus, this pitiful man. Church, for whom do we live? And if we say for Christ, then does our life look like it? Are we focused on our life and our dreams and our pursuits like Jonah? Or do we have a burning desire to see the unreached come to faith? To see the lost come to faith? And to see the professing, disobedient, or rebellious Christians in our lives repent and turn to the Lord? What drives us? Continuing on in a weird chain of events, God asks Jonah if he has good reason to be angry. And seemingly Jonah responds in verse 5 with leaving the city and making a dwelling for himself, watching to see what would happen to Nineveh. Almost as if he gave God an ultimatum. God says, Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? And Jonah just gets up and leaves. As if Jonah says to him, if you, God, don't want me to be so mad, don't want me to be burning, then destroy them. 
And then he goes and he waits and he watches, hoping to see in 40 days the judgment upon Nineveh. But then God being a sovereign, merciful God that he is, he intervenes. And listen to this, listen to this in verse 6. So Yahweh God appointed a plant, and it came up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his miserable evil. And Jonah was extremely glad about the plant. That word evil, maybe your Bible translates discomfort, again is the same word to describe Nineveh's evil. It's the same word that Jonah just used to accuse God of such evil. Meaning that God reveals his purpose in doing everything that he is doing in Jonah's life, which is to deliver Jonah from his evil. If you are a believer, which I assume you are since you are here this morning, then this is true of you. God hates your sin because it keeps you from seeing him and glorifying him as you ought, as well as it keeps you from living the abundant life that we are supposed to have in Christ. Therefore, God refines us and disciplines us to remove the sin, to remove the evil, making Christ in us more prominent. It's beautiful and it's necessary. And although it's hard and at times painful, it's worth it and we ought to give thanks for it. Now what's Jonah's response to this mercy of God given through the shade that God gave him? He is, quote unquote, extremely happy. Which is the same exact phrasing in the Hebrew in chapter 4, verse 1, where the author describes Jonah as seeing God's mercy to the Assyrians as a great evil. You could say... It is the same word that Jonah felt God was extremely evil. Yet when God gives him shade, Jonah is now extremely happy. It's the same wording. See the imbalance and the extreme error in Jonah's thinking? Yet this is what God does. God is correcting Jonah's faulty thinking and his faulty living. And therefore, in verses 7 through 8, God sovereignly appoints a worm to strike down the plant and causes the sun to strike down on Jonah. In Hebrew, that word in both cases is the same and it means to kill. Ironic? Here Jonah is wanting God to kill him and then telling himself that he just wishes he could die. Yet instead of God killing Jonah, he kills the plant. And he causes the son to act like a killing agent upon him so that God could ultimately kill the evil that exists within Jonah. Wow. Church, seriously, praise God for this. That he deals even harshly at times with his children so that our sin would be put to death. God hates our sin more than we do. And he hates it for our best interest. Amen. Yet God is merciful and loving, and we are not to have fear of him in a negative connotation like Romans 8, 15 through 18. But within his love for us, it can seem harsh, at times, due to the fact that in order to rip our sin, rip out our sin, we can be glorified with him. 
And he does this by giving us at times suffering. So Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 18, it should be on the screen. Paul says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Therefore, church, the path to glory for us, just like it was for Christ himself, is through hardship. It's through suffering. It's through God's refining, which although seems painful, is actually mercy and it is good and it produces righteousness within us. Just as Hebrews 12.11 says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Jonah wants to die, and instead God kills the shade. And God causes the sun to act like a killing agent upon him to cause Jonah suffering so that God could rip the sin out of his life. Is your life hard at times? It's probably because God is ripping sin out, which is good. Is your life joyless at times? It's probably because God is ripping sin out, which is good. We need it because it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Thus, how does this wonderful story in Jonah end? As per usual, in bizarre fashion. In verses 9 through 11, it says, Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then Yahweh said, You had pity on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came to be overnight and perished overnight. So should I not have pity on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right hand and left hand, as well as many animals? The Lord reproves Jonah even further by showing him the ridiculousness of his desire to die and the ridiculousness of his reason for being angry and the ridiculousness of his compassion for a plant all while he has no compassion for the lost. And when God says that these people in Nineveh don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, he is playing on a Hebrew idiom to describe the Assyrians' lack of knowledge of the law, their lack of knowledge on how to live rightly before God, as shown in Joshua 23, 6. Be very firm to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Church, if we claim to be of Christ, then we ought to live like Christ through the power of Christ and for the glory of Christ. And what does that look like? It looks like having compassion on unbelievers as Jesus did. It looks like being refreshing to believers as Jesus was. The famous verse in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Well, to go back again to the story of Philemon as Jesus ushers all people to come to him to receive rest for their souls, 
Paul uses the same word rest there to describe Philemon. And he uses the word rest to say that the churches, those around you, Philemon, have been refreshed. The same Hebrew word for rest. They've been refreshed by your love for the saints. Philemon giving the people of God the same rest that we get in coming to Christ because it is Christ through Philemon that is providing the rest, who is providing the refreshment to the believers. Church, we ought to be that same refreshment, that same rest that Philemon is to the church, that Jesus is to us because Christ is in us and therefore our lives ought to be refreshing to those around us. And living like Christ looks like discipling people through the word and prayer just like Jesus did. Church, let us not be like Jonah. But if and when we see a resemblance of him in our lives, let us repent and turn to God like the Assyrians. Church, let us be extremely grateful to God for our salvation. And the continual grace that he shows us in our continual sin as he continually reveals to us through discipline and refining our extreme need for him in every moment. Church, simply put, let us die to self and live in Christ so that it would be him making much of himself within us rather than us making much of ourselves For after all, the point of our existence and the point of the mercy that we have been shown and are continually shown is to make Christ be more prominent and exalted in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good and so worthy to be worshipped, so worthy to be studied, so worthy to be taught. Oh God, we are not deserving of your mercy. We're not deserving of this salvation. And yet, Lord, in so many times in our lives, we live like Jonah. Angry at you. Despising unbelievers. Having head knowledge but not heart knowledge. And Lord, forgive us for that. Let us be like the pagan sailors, like the Assyrians, Lord, who have nothing to offer you. Who just simply want to worship you, Lord, for who you are. God, continue to work in our hearts and our minds, causing us to love you more, causing us to pursue you more, to pursue your righteousness, to pursue your will. Lord, cause us to die to self and to live in you. Lord, make much of yourself in us. Exalt yourself in us. Conform our bodies to you. Lord, make yourself more prominent in us. Glorify yourself as I pray that you are glorified in this sermon. In Christ's name we pray, amen.